0: Hi, I'm Max Weisbrod. This is another episode of Inflection Point. Today, I'm joined by Nate Andorsky, who is the founder of the UX and product agency, Patent 355, and also the author of Decoding the Why, How Behavioral Science is Driving the Next Generation of Product Design.
1: Nate, can you tell us a little bit more about what y'all do? Yeah, definitely. And thank you so much for having me on the, the show today. Really excited to be here. Always love to jam about anything product-related and behavioral science-related, but we're a behavioral-first product design studio. We work with early startups, either helping them build or accelerate products that are already in market to hit, hit their next stage of growth. Absolutely.
0: So you've also written a book in this space, right? And so you've probably got a good amount of experience helping companies grow and solve their largest challenges using behavioral science. Could you tell us about some of the, you know, cases that you've seen that you wrote about in your book?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, the the thesis of the approach and how this even came to be was 6 or 7 years ago I read a book called Nudge, which if you're familiar with behavioral economics, it's like the key mark book. And I was like reading through it and I have a product background and engineering background and some of the concepts in the book that they talk about if you build products or you design products, you just intuitively know, right? Make things really simple to use. Don't give people too many choices. Use some sort of social norming and social validation. And I said to myself, it's really interesting because Nudge talks about those concepts, not specifically with products, just broader, but it goes so much deeper. And I thought to myself, there must be companies that are using this great insight of what drives human behavior and integrating it to the way you think about building products. Um, and I quickly found out there really wasn't. And that's where I started to go down this journey of figuring out how to do this. And the key really with behavioral science, and I think the power of it is, we're not really consciously aware of what drives our decision-making. So when you do customer interviews, when you get qualitative research, the insights you're getting from your customers is only telling you a very small part of the picture. And the reason is because you're asking people to explain the rationale behind their decisions that they don't even understand themselves. And you're missing a lot of the picture. And even in addition to that, too, a lot of research has shown that we often, when somebody asks us why we did something or why we will do something, we make up stories. So we lie to people, right? And if you're just anchoring on customer insights and what people are telling you, you tend to run in circles. And I'm sure you've seen this all the time where you go out your customers, you say, like, what feature do you want me to build? And then you build it and then nobody uses it. And you kind of run in this circle around and around and around. And that's really the power of behavioral science it helps us figure out, like, what are the key insights that we need to know that our customers aren't able to tell us and use that as the foundation for how we think about building products, designing products, and bringing products to market.
0: So what tells a founder that their issues are able to be solved by applying you know these concepts from behavioral science? What drives a founder to reach out to you at Patent 355?
1: A couple of things. So first thing is they've tried everything else and they still can't move the needle is usually the big thing. The second thing is, and this goes to a little bit larger than just the behavioral science piece, but every founder has that moment in their journey where they feel that they're spread so thin, they're doing a million different things, but nothing's moving the needle forward. right? And they, they don't really have a clear idea who their ICP is. They know that their product has some traction and it's growing, but they don't really know. It's not repeatable. It's not scalable. They might be seeing success. And that's usually the point. The way that they'll articulate it usually is we need to rethink or revamp our brand, or we need to fix the user experience of our product, or we need to invest in content marketing, and we need to invest in an outbound sales team. And all of those things could be true, but oftentimes there's Deeper are going on that you need to fix first before you throw all that fuel on the fire. And with that, ultimately, I'm a bit biased, but I believe that any problem as it relates to product problems and go-to-market strategies fundamentally are human behavior problems, right? Because you have to understand how to change and drive human behavior to make any type of change. The technology and the strategies are what you put on top of that to make sure that you can scale it. But ultimately, first, you need to understand human behavior and what drives human behavior. So
0: before they engage you, you know, these early stage companies, usually they've just raised their Series A, you know, something like that. What signals are they looking at before they engage you? And is it the that you're bringing in new signals, or is it that you're showing them a different way to think about the signals that they're already looking at?
1: It's we're showing them a different way to think about the signals that they're already looking at. So for example, let's say that you have a an app that helps people save money, okay? And you're seeing that people sign up for the app, they use it for three or four weeks and then they churn, right? So the churn is the signal. That's a quantitative data point that you can gather. And you're trying to figure out how do I fix that churn problem? One of the things you might do is you might ask customers and they might say to you, hey, listen, I need this feature, or this feature, or this feature, I'll keep using your app. Then you build it and you still have a churn problem, right? So you have all this data. You know something's up, but you don't really know why. And if you don't know why, you can't fix it. And that's typically the point where we can come in and help them understand. And I—that's why my book is called Decoding the Why, which is the why data. Like what—what what are the insights behind what's going on that are going to tell you how to actually fix this problem?
0: And what what are the things that you're that you're you know looking at? Like, could you, could you walk us through just like a, a a case of how you've changed, how they've thought about a particular problem that they were facing?
1: Yes. So I'll actually give you a fascinating example that talks about a recent client that we worked with. Okay. They, um, it's in the health tech space and they have created or are creating a program in which they are planning to release a health insurance program that also provides healthcare as part of the insurance program. And basically what they're saying to you is, hey, listen, I'm going to give you cheaper health insurance and it's going to be better than what you already have, right? And logically that sounds good, right? But what's interesting about that, when it comes to decisions that are very complex and we have a hard time understanding what all the inputs and the outputs are, such as health insurance... If somebody tells you that something is cheaper and better, oftentimes because the decision is so overwhelming, you won't believe them. And what do we do when we have a hard time making a decision, right? We anchor on one specific point. And in this case, with health insurance, often we use price as a proxy for value, even if it's not true. But you can't convince somebody that that's not true, right? So one of the insights we brought up to them, we said, hey, listen, promoting your plan as cheaper than everybody else could actually backfire because people can use that as a proxy for what the quality and the value is. A better idea would be to price it at the market rate and then provide your your policyholders with some sort of rebate or refund for doing the right thing. Because then in their mind, what it does is it says, okay, this is priced at what it should be. Therefore, the value is what it should be. And if I do the right things and take the right actions, then I understand why this insurance is not as expensive as all the other insurance programs. That's like a very high level. That that taps more on like the overall model and business strategy. But like a key insight how if you didn't understand behavioral science, you're like, oh yeah, just tell everyone it's cheaper. Like we'll get more customers, customers that way. But if you start to dig into the academic literature, you understand that with specific decisions, when price is used as a proxy for value, that can actually backfire. It's very interesting. So it sounds like what you did is
0: you effectively layered in a game on top of their application and product. But how do you think about like these user facing games and how they can be applied to in, you know, increase engagement, increase retention, reduce churn, things like that?
1: Yeah, so I think that the whole like field of gamification can be very powerful. I also think we're seeing it. I don't want to say on the decline, but like Duolingo, I'm sure you know about Duolingo, right? Oftentimes when companies come to us and they say, hey, listen, we need a gamified experience, right? And they go like, we want everything Duolingo has. The problem is you can't cop- cut, copy, and paste that stuff. It just doesn't work like that. Game mechanics are actually really complex and really intricate. And oftentimes you can employ one specific gaming technique and it can actually have a what's called a crowding out effect. And I'll give you just like a high level kind of structure of how this works. So motivation typically is broken down into two categories. There's intrinsic motivation and then there's extrinsic motivation. Extrinsic motivation are badges and rewards and you get some sort of external reward for doing something. Intrinsic motivation, you engage in a behavior because you're intrinsically motivated. It gives you some sort of self-satisfaction, a sense of belonging, a sense of meaning. What's interesting though is if there is a behavior that is intrinsically motivated and you introduce an extrinsic motivator into it, it can have a quote unquote crowding out effect. It can actually backfire, right? This is like the classic example of somebody who was very creative, right? And then you pay them to do the creative activity and they don't enjoy doing it anymore, right? So gamified models on the surface seem pretty simple, but you you unpack them and they're very complex. And if you don't take the steps to under complexities, you can sometimes deploy a feature that can have the exact opposite effect that you want it to,
0: that crowding out effect is like endemic if you look at like NFTs or or cryptocurrencies in particular with airdrops and, and all those things that completely overwhelmed and destroyed intrinsic motiv- motivation in that space. Right. So have you ever had circumstances where you come into a client, you say, hey, you know, there is a particular game that we should be layering in here. And they say, oh, well, we've already tried that right? Well, we tried something. We tried to gamify and it didn't work. Yeah, Can you tell us a little bit about like the bad game that was in place and and the adjustments that you made or the changes that you made?
1: Yeah. So the devil is in the details, right? Uh, An example of this, actually, leaderboards is a perfect example. We tried a leaderboard, it didn't work, right? And it could just be in your context, like, don't do leaderboards. But let's just say, theoretically, leaderboards could work in your context, but you didn't employ them right. What do you think is one of the biggest mistakes that companies make when employing leaderboards? I'm putting you on the spot here, Max. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's there's it's, no wrong answer. <laughs> it's just gonna be, you know, some simple high level metric like the number of times they log in, or you know, something that's you know simple and easy for them to measure, or they just use their North Star
1: metric. It could be that. And you ever played Mario Kart? Yes. Okay. So I, I, everyone I asked that too has played Mario Kart because if you haven't played Mario Kart, you do have a childhood. But I played Mario Kart as a kid. And one of the things that you always notice is when you're playing Mario Kart, towards the last lap of the race, doesn't matter how far ahead you are or how far behind, all of a sudden everyone is neck and neck, right? You're very far behind, you get all this power up. So there's like mushrooms and bananas and stuff. And I used to think this was just coincidence. Cool. It's like if I was behind, I was a really good game player and I was able to catch up. But what's interesting is they leverage something called dynamic game balancing. The game rebalances in real time, and they do this intentionally because they know if somebody's too far ahead or too far behind, you you rationalize to yourself, "There's just no point because I'm already I'm I'm." There's no competition, right? So you do like cohorting or something, exactly. And you notice this Duolingo uses this technique, but in a different way uh, with leaderboards. They don't have one large leaderboard. They break you up into I think it's segments of ten, right? So you're No matter what you're doing, you're always competing with somebody who is within reach. And this is like a prime example of like, we're going to employ leaderboards, but like if you just employ a leaderboard the way that people usually do it, it's probably not work. But if you understand the game mechanics of why this could or couldn't work, I can come to you and say, hey, listen, no, leaderboards do work. It's just your application of the way that you employ the leaderboard didn't work.
0: So you you say that, that gamification is on the downtrend. It's being employed less and less. What are the factors that are that are driving that shift? And do you think that that's where founders should be going? Okay, so I, I don't have
1: any data to back up that that gamification is on the downtrend. It's a a feeling, a feeling. I I don't think I think what has happened is some very well known startups became very popular. And their model was built on gamification. So then what you start to see is you see a lot of other companies try to copy that. So it's not that it's on the downtrend. I think that they're, it was like a hot new thing for a while. And I think it still kind of is. Sorry, what was the second part of the question?
0: What do you think is driving uh, founders' decision-making on that and you know, shifting resources, basically?
1: I mean, ultimately, what they want to do is drive you know conversions, retention, and engagement. Like that's the name of the game, no matter what type of company you run. And they've seen in other companies, game mechanics work very well. Um, And they can. I I think the critical step there, and this is something that's not even behavioral science related, is if you have a product that's not truly solving a pain point, like you could throw the kitchen sink at it of behavioral science and it's still not going to work, right? And I think that's the most critical thing is behavioral science is very powerful at helping us understand user insights. Come up with ideas and scale what you're doing, but ultimately, like you need to make sure that you're actually solving a pain point in the market. Because if you're not, it doesn't matter how much behavioral science layered on. If if people don't find inherent value of what it is that you provide, you can gamify it all you want, and it's not going to work.
0: So you predominantly serve like product led growth B two B SaaS companies. Is that like relatively accurate? Yes. So
1: and B two B to C too. Gotcha.
0: So I'm used to seeing gamification in B2B SaaS where it's like, you know, here's your checklist for onboarding, you know, like here's your like percentage complete, like things like that, which is kind of like I I suppose like really minor. Right. But how do you see companies leveraging gamification after users have been educated and have gotten at least some some value or past an aha moment with an application?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on what type of application. Like, I think, so let's let's do this quick. What, like, theoretically, just give me an example of something, and then we can riff on that specific application or idea. Or, I mean, you can just, like, literally make it up. Let's say, like, a
0: spend platform. Where they've got an onboarding checklist, where you are, you know, setting up your first budgets, inviting users, you know, getting points for using
1: certain features, potentially participating in a referral program. Okay. So this is a great example. I love that we're doing this. So pretend you're the founder, Max, you just came up with this new revolutionary idea. I would first say to you, what is the target behavior that you want to drive of your users? Like, how do you know that you've been successful?
0: Well, we make money on interchange, right? So we want to drive volume through cards. Okay. Uh, Like gaming cards? Well, this is a, we're a, a business. This is, or, you know, our clients are other businesses. This is a spend management platform. Okay. We want them using our virtual credit cards or credit cards for everything. Okay.
1: Got it. So I'm hearing two things, spend, spend management. What is in your mind, the spend management piece? Like what is the ideal outcome or insight behind that piece? Like, are you trying to help people spend more responsibly when you say spend management? I'm
0: trying to help like CFOs and finance teams understand like the cost side of, you know, their P&L. You know, I want to, you know, basically tie into their ledger and I want them to move as much of their spend through us as possible. I'm not sure if that's answering your question though.
1: Yeah, so I think there's two things. Number one is I would say, like what is, what is the, the advantage of them spending the money through your company versus what other, other means they have, right? So there's got to be some sort of incentive around that. I don't know what that is, right? The second thing I think would be interesting is like, so the question becomes is how do we get people to keep using the product? Well, you need to provide them value. And the way that you could potentially provide them value is, okay, if I'm a CFO of a company, I'm looking at my p P&L, right? And then I'm saying to myself, is this good or is this bad? And how do you tell someone if it's good or it's bad? Well, one of the ways that you could do it is you could leverage in social norms through behavioral science is begin to show them how they compare or contrast against their peers or their peer group, right? And then you can show them based on other CFOs in your industry doing X, Y, Z, you are 3% over X, you know, those types of things, right? And that's very different than just saying, here's information about your P&L or you're doing good or bad, but you're showing them like what is the, What are the environmental norms in the way that they should be conducting business? Does so that exist? Like, this, that's a good idea. <laughs> then you can run with it. You're like, I want 50% equity. You do all the execution, and I'll sit back and just give right. you ideas. Okay, but that's the type of thing where, like, I think a lot of times what we do is when we create these products and these ideas, is that we say like what are my competitors doing and you get into this i call it like the echo chamber of feature cloning where everyone's just building what everyone else is building but no one's really thought through on a behavioral level like how do people to do this thing right another really quick example on this so let's say you want people to use your platform right there was a fascinating study that came out i think it was about a decade ago around this idea of called prize link savings they were trying to get they were trying to help people from low income backgrounds save more money what they said is, listen, if you save you know, X number of dollars every single month, you essentially get a lottery ticket into this pool of money. At the end of the year, what we do is we're going to raffle off prizes, right? So every time you save money, you are also inadvertently playing the lottery, right? And they saw a major uptick in savings rate against this specific treatment group. So like, and I just don't know if money would be motivating to CFOs in this way. But again, like you could think of like, I don't know, what would like a prize link savings type of model look like in this area? It might be, it might be an incentive effect, a
0: lottery tickets for the individual contributors who are participate, you know, who own like individual parts of the budget, you know, like to drive savings across the org. You want everybody at every level looking for opportunities to save the company money and cut vendors who aren't useful. Look for fat that
1: you could you could
0: have a, a lottery
1: for for them, right? And exactly, I think I think that. You can see now how, like, bringing the behavioral science into this conversation all of a sudden starts to, like, reshift the way that you're even thinking about the problem. And all of a sudden, you're coming up with these solutions and these feature ideas that, like, you don't have any competitors because you don't really own this company. But theoretically, if you own the company, like, guarantee you no one else is sitting around thinking of this type of stuff, right? Apparently not, because... You know, I, I don't uh, I don't have any
0: such incentives available to my employees. Yeah. <laughs> so if we're looking at like the next couple of quarters here, like what trends are you seeing? What's happening in the space? Like, what are you thinking about and what are you looking forward to?
1: I am looking forward to when you say the space, what do you define as like the space?
0: I suppose B2B SaaS or, you know, your target audience, uh, like your target you know, ICP, your ideal customer profile, like what's happening there and where are things going?
1: I mean, as I'm sure you're aware, just because what's been going on with the venture scene, like money's been tight. I think we're starting to see a little of the ice starting to melt a little bit on that. I don't know for sure. So I think people and companies try to be more efficient with the way that they spend and allocate money. That's a big thing. And I think I was on a call a couple of weeks ago, one of my clients, I do these like one-on-one interviews with the internal team just to get a sense of what's going on. And somebody said to me, they wanted to do this thing, but he said, we need to nail it before we scale it. And I love that, that terminology. And I think that's, what's really critical right now is, and I do it all the time too, not all the time, but I've done it because as a founder, like you want to, like you want to scale everything. And I think it's really critical to first nail what it is that you need to do, whether it's around your ICP or a product feature and then scale it. Rather than just jumping to scaling. So, even if you look at companies that
0: are five, $6 million in revenue, they could have very little product in place in order to get to that revenue level. They could even have very little in, in the way of true sales process. A lot of the firms that are that early, it really is founders engaging in hand to hand combat and learning a lot from interacting directly with their customers. I do notice that sometimes a company will raise funds before they're really ready to effectively deploy it. And they will build things that are so far away from the actual customers that like they end up <laughs> with like an unsustainable cost structure and and big churn problems. So if you're looking at like your customers, are you seeing more discipline in the people who are coming through the door now?
1: Yeah, I think it uh, some of them, yeah. I think sometimes it's hard to make like it's it, like, I think sometimes it can be very hard to admit that you don't know who your ICP is. You don't have a sales process or like, of course we have a sales process. What's your sales process? Well, the founder goes out and he sells stuff. Like, that's not a process, right? Like, the, like, the, what's indicative of a successful sales process is the founder isn't involved in the sales process, right? But like, I'm a big proponent, as you are, is you can't hire your way out of those types of problems. Like, the founder should be the one. Who's figuring out the sales process, and then once you figure it out, a repeatable and replicable sales process, then you backfill fill it. It's like no different than um like a car production line, right? You like you have to figure out the production line first before you can figure out who to staff on the production line. So that's 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 I think I think spot on, and I think that's the challenge. You know, you you raise some venture capital and some money, and like they want to see growth like at all costs, and you, like. They 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 gave you that money to spend that money so you better staff up right so it can be tough if you're if you're sitting there being like I don't really know who ICP is but I've got you know two hundred thousand dollars that I have to burn through every month on growth marketing well you got to throw it somewhere so so it's really hard
0: to you know promise or predict uh, you know how much any particular experiment or test or idea is able to you know shift the growth trajectory of a of a company right. So what promises and assurances are you making in a sales process given like the fact that you're basically it sounds like running experiments for them right what 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 are the promises and what what are timelines that they should actually expect to see you know initial signs of of results
1: yeah so i always under promise and over deliver is my go to there but i think that the experiment piece, I think, and the behavioral science piece, people say, like, what's what's the real value of it? And I say it's it's really de-risky, right? So if you come to me and you say, listen, I have these 10 feature ideas for this app that you were talking about earlier. I can go through them and basically tell you, like, knowing what I know about behavioral science, like, of those 10 features, what are two of them you shouldn't even, like, waste your time on, right? So I can help you narrow down the the 10 ideas you have to five. And then what I can do is I can give you really quick ways to begin to test and validate get some insights around whether those five features are worth pursuing or whether only two of those features are worth pursuing. So I usually can get a sense of outcomes depending on where you are. Like if you're like, listen, I need another million dollars of ARR by the time I finish working with you. I go, what's your current ARR? And you're like, it's 200,000. I'm going to be like, that's probably not going to happen. Right. But like, If you're a hundred million dollar company, right, and I look at your onboarding flow and I see like just pretty basic stuff that's wrong with it, like I could probably come in and be like, I'm relatively confident based on my experience and what I've seen in behavioral science and the products that I've built that I can like I can get a decent lift here of X percent. And then that can translate theoretically to a dollar number. So it's case by case, I think, really is what it is. That's like one of the most
0: interesting phenomenons I, I see with consultants, contract executives, you know, things like that is there are, there are often cases where I'm able to walk into a meeting and I'm able to hear what's going on, see what's going on. And in in an hour, we're able to save several months just by avoiding a bunch of known pitfalls. So is that like one of the key things that you're using as part of like your sales process? That story about you know saving them from making mistakes that you know they're going to make otherwise, or how do you
1: angle and how do you position? So there's two key things. The first thing is it's experience, right? And it's really what it is is it's pattern recognition, and this is a very real thing in any industry. The longer you work and the more scenarios you see, you start to build mental models of certain scenarios, and you can just identify. And I'm sure you can in the work that you do. I can talk to a company for 15 minutes and within that first 15 minutes, I can identify like 70 to 80% of their issues just from talking to them. Because Not because I know everything about that company, but I've seen this play out so many times before I can tell you what your issues are. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is, is it's the behavioral science again, right? We have um, a scientific, a science backed methodology that we use, right? Instead of just sitting in a room and saying, I don't know this thing. I, I think this was going to work. Like I, We've got uh, a methodology and rigor that backs up that approach.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Nate. Where is the best place for people to get in touch with you?
1: Definitely. So LinkedIn, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Nate Andorsky, N-A-T-E space, A-N-D-O-R-S-K-Y. And if you also want to get in touch with me, you can email me at nate at patent355.com. Go to the website, patent355.com.
0: Absolutely. We'll throw all of that down there, along with a link to decoding the why, how behavioral science is driving the next generation of product design. Thank you so much for your time, Nate, and hope you have a great rest of your week. Awesome. Thank you, Max.